Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, join us on a sunride with SST-217, the treacherous jaywalkers, La Isla Bonita 12-inch. We love the TJs on the show. They uh, are always weird, and this one is no exception. But to help us along the way, we're super pumped to have a special guest, Brent. Yeah, we've got Quinn Haber on the show. Awesome to have Quinn on. I think that means that we've had every TJ on. Is that right? Yep. Uh, and I think that's the only band maybe we can say that about. I think so, too. Like, we're one away on the Descendants, if you if you count just, like, current members, right? Yep. We're one away on Firehose, George Hurley, if you're listening. Yeah. Which I know he isn't. <laughs> <laughs> It's not yeah. for lack of trying, let me tell you. Yeah. Well, hey, man, we've got over a hundred more episodes to go. I'm yeah. not. I'm not going to give up if you won't. I'm not giving up. Well, uh, let's get into the TJs in a minute. Here, we've got a great interview with Quinn. But before we do that, Brent, why don't you hit me with some spiel's? Yeah, I don't have much, Ryan. My my spiel is kind of later in the episode. Oh, I've okay. kind of buried it in the mix a little bit. Okay. Uh, and you know, it's fairly lengthy, so I'm going to save some time on, in the spiel section, but I just want to mention, speaking of people, uh, tried to get on the show over the years, you and I both saw Hank this week separately in different cities. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that as part of my spiel. How'd you like it? Uh, Hank, Henry's always awesome, man. Uh, you know, uh, I don't want to spoil too much about what he said for, for people that are going to go see him. No. Uh, but you should, if he's coming to your, to your town. Yep. I had to laugh though. He was talking about being on a treadmill and rocking an iPod and people in the local gym coming up to him and asking him what the hell that thing is. Yeah. And, and, uh, when and, he was when he was saying that I'm like, "Oh, you know, I have 3, you know, 160 gig iPod classics that I update weekly, yeah. you know." That's why I laughed when he said it. <laughs> about me? Yeah. Oh, come on. You don't have an iPod anymore? Do you do it all on your phone? Oh, yeah. Well, you can't, I don't know, you can't put enough on your phone. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'm glad I made you laugh during Henry Rollins' uh, <laughs> spoken word performance. It was good. I, I have only seen him once before, shockingly. Hmm. And it was similar in that it was some um, old and new stories, rapid fire, nonstop, Lots of energy, totally engaging. You almost get into a bit of a trance listening to him. Mm -hmm. It's it's so fast, but yeah, it's it's great. You know, did a couple of shout outs to SST and SST alum, which I'm always keen to hear about and some some new stuff. So definitely worth it. People should check it out. Yeah, my wife was with me and she goes, why don't you get him on your show? He seems Yuck. he seems to be okay with talking about that kind of stuff, SST and and Black Flag. And I said, yeah, I don't know. There's some longstanding tension and animosity there. And and she goes, well, he he seemed to have you know nice things to say about people in Black Flag. Um, <laughs> I was like, yeah, about the music. Yeah, I feel like Henry is you know a little bit done talking about. Th- things with respect to Black Flag, except for how he joined the band. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So, yeah, but it's definitely worth going. 
the next concert that I'm going to that I'm pumped about, man, Weird Al Yankovic. Oh, uh, yeah. The next right? one I'm going to is Primus. Oh, no way. Playing, That'll a, be... playing a full full set of Rush. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I saw some posts on that. I bet you that'll be killer. Yeah. And I thought, I think I saw like Alex and Getty at one of their performances, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So cool. Yeah, man. What do you have, Ryan? I've got three on the tree. Okay. So three SS tree related releases have come up since our last episode that I caught. It's too bad. Two of them are actually related to Dinosaur Jr., but one is a tie into this episode. So it's a perfect bridge, I think. Um, Dinosaur Jr., Coming out on Cherry Red Records for the first time on vinyl is a 12-inch EP. 7,200 seconds is what it's called. It's a performance from MTV 1993. Can't wait to check that one out. Again, it's, you know, post-Lou, but still going to be good dino, so I'm in. But speaking of Lou, the second release that has uh, come out on the SS Tree is a new single by Lou Barlow and Company, it's called. It's uh, out on 200 hand-cut lathe square 7 inches, like that that clear lathe 7-inch type of thing. Um, he is basically accompanied by members of Eat Fire Spring, and it's two songs, Only Fading and Sacrifice. That's out on Joyful Noise Records, so you can get some new... Lou into your system right now and you should do that and then speaking of a tie-in to this episode because we will be talking about Vetus, Vetus Matare Petrified Max has got a new record out, their third album in as many years Everything's Beautiful Now was just released, you can of course get it digital but also going to be released on 500 hand numbered CDs this is, of course, John Rosewall and then Vetus from uh, The Last and Trotsky. And then also they're joined by Danny Frankel. If it's anything like their prior two discs, it's going to be a great psych, jangly, alt-indie, post-punk record, you know, really carrying on The Last and Trotsky tradition. I can't wait to check that one out. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I bet that, I, I didn't know about that, but I bet Jeff and Soraya will have have something to say about that right on paisley stage yeah yeah they've had those guys on before to talk about petrified max yeah i did notice too those are my three on the ss tree i did notice in the the cherry red newsletter where i saw the dinosaur junior release that the new buzzcocks record is coming out soon hmm. interested to check that one out i mean i i basically will get anything buzzcocks but of course missing a key member now i'm sure it's still going to be really good though that's one of the things Henry said in his sh in his show when he was working. I can't remember where. This is before pre Black Flag, not Hagen does, but somewhere. And the older alcoholic bums that worked there or whatever called it, used to call him Buzzcock. Hey, Buzzcock! Yeah, I, know. <laughs> I know, right? It's like you hear from way back when, you know, way before our time about how punks would be called, you know, Hey Devo. Yeah, like that was an insult. Yeah. I'm like, dude, you can call me Buzzcock or Devo all you want for the rest of my life. Couldn't care. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. All right, man. Anything else or should we dream of San Pedro? Let's do that. History lesson, part one. All right, man. So back with the Treacherous Jaywalkers, we are fans. And a again, 
so many ideas on this record. I have to admit, it's probably of their SST output, probably the one that I know the least. I really like side two on this record. (laughs) I kind of go to side two. But hey, I thought to kick us off on this, it would be great to read you a quote from a book. And I think for the first time, we're now going to be using Jim Rulin's book, Corporate Rock Sucks, to intro us to Treacherous Jaywalkers. How about it? Right on. Hit me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So here we go. First reading from Jim's book, Killer. Here we go. Quote, SST was committed to releasing records regardless of their commercial viability. If Greg Ginn thought a band was doing something interesting and cool, he supported it. Vitas Matare who helped produce his own projects and worked with a number of SST bands, considered Ginn's support essential to the indie ecosystem. Quote, There was always money to pay for tape and studio time. He came to listen to everything. He cared about everything. It isn't like you brought him an album and he said, okay, we'll put it out. He was really listening to it. He didn't want a medal. He just wanted to see it get out there. It was an ideal situation for so many bands. One of those bands was Treacherous Jaywalkers, a trio of talented but raw musicians from L.A. whose debut EP, Sunrise, SST-126, was produced by Watt and led to a full-length record, Good Medicine, SST-207, and a second EP, La Isla Bonita, SST-217, that Matare helped produce. Quote, and here's from Vetus again. They should have rehearsed a bit more, maybe, and matured a little bit and done that record six months later, but Greg didn't care. If they're going to get better, we'll put out another record, but let's put this out now. Hmm. Okay, well, (laughs) you're kind of teeing me up here for something I got from Josh Hayden, and this is about uh, two things, him being, uh, the band being dropped by SST, which they were after this came out, and about the last time he saw Greg Ginn. Do it. Okay, dig this. He said, the way Greg Ginn dropped Treacherous from SST seemed abrupt to me at the time, but I don't blame Greg. After Good Medicine was was released, I called him to ask if SST wanted to put out our next album. He asked if it was true we were all going away to college. I told him yes, but that we were still recording and planning to tour when we were on breaks. There was silence, and I asked again, did he want to put our next record out? He responded with one word, no. (laughs) i said okay and hung up that was my final conversation with him Hmm. can you imagine like greg ginn talking to jay mascus about like sst dinosaur business no it it probably (laughs) well i don't know how do you define talking if you if you define a four word conversation total then yeah maybe yeah I have a feeling, you know, Chuck was being the the go-between a lot of times mm-hmm. with the label and yeah. and the, the artists or, or other people, you know, Joe Carducci when he was around or Rich Ford or, you know, I know um, Ray Farrell did a lot of communicating with mm-hmm. the uh, East Coast bands, for example. Okay, and then this is what else Joe, Josh told me. He said, the last time I saw Greg was about 15 years later. I was en route with a friend to see my father play at a venue called The Jazz Bakery in Culver City. In Culver City, We stopped for dinner at a nearby restaurant. 
A free jazz combo, including my first bass teacher, Stuart Liebig, was playing on the small stage. Wow, I haven't seen Stuart in years, I thought to myself. This'll be great. My friend leaned in and said, don't look now, but I think that's Greg Ginn sitting there. I looked over, and on a raised platform of his own, surrounded by a smoky white spotlight, was Greg Ginn <laughs> having dinner with his wife and young child. <laughs> I looked again, just to make sure, and Greg, evidently having seen and recognized me, was looking back with an utterly horrified look on his face. <laughs> sort of like a combination of Edward Munch's The Scream and the last shot of Donald, Donald Sutherland in the 1978 Invasion of the Body Snatchers remake. I thought to myself, I guess he isn't going to say hi, and ordered food. I looked one more time and his demeanor had changed completely. He was almost dancing in his seat, grooving to the complicated offbeat of Stewart's improvisational ensemble, as if it were Saturday Night Fever era Bee Gees, while his wife danced with his kid atop their own stage and spotlight in a bubble of their own fantastical world. Wow. <laughs> Sounds about right. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know, man. Uh, I, I do have some stuff to say about this, this record and... Uh, but I think now would be the time to throw it over to Quinn. Oh, yeah. Let's do it. All right. We're joined on the podcast today by Quinn Haber. Quinn, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Okay. So we're talking about this EP, the La Ila Bonita EP. But before we do that, I want to go back to, to you starting out playing guitar. And now you grew up in Palisades. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think I was about 11 uh, my mom bought me my first electric guitar for Christmas. It was a, a red Fender Bullet. Then I uh, started taking lessons with um, uh, a fellow by the name of Patrick Hildebrand Sr., who's sort of a, pretty much a local le legend in the Pacific Palisades where I live. Mm -hmm. He had a store called Amazing Music, and it's still there. And he's still giving lessons. Was really just a fantastic teacher. And if it wasn't for him, I'm not really sure if I would have stuck with guitar. Because, you know, when I went in there, he's like, bring me some songs that you want to learn. So the first two songs I brought in was Black Flags, Rise Above, and I think Jimi Hendrix, like Little Wing or Hey Joe. And, and he's like, Sure, he had no problem. So that was great because, remember, this is like early 80s. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of guitar teachers at that time, if you brought in any Black Flag song, they would have been like, oh, I, I'm going to talk to your mom or whatever. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I got started um, like probably 1981 or 1980. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, I think a lot of guitar players, either that or they would have been like, this is garbage. Yeah, yeah, he uh, is just, uh, Patrick Kilbrandt Sr. really uh, was amazing, because even back then, no judgment, totally open to any kind of music, was a real asset to me in those early days. Because, you know, when you're starting out with any instrument, it can be a, a real sensitive, frustrating time. But when you can learn the music that you want to learn and emulate, 
then it gives you that motivation that, um, you know, I'm sure if I had piano lessons at the time and they were trying to teach me, you know, Chopin or, or something, which I appreciate now, but back then I would have been all, okay, you know, when is this going to be over? Yeah, when do I get so, to So, yeah, rock? I really, <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, was Treacherous your first band? Yeah, it was, but um, we weren't even called Treacherous at first, and it was a totally different lineup. The singer was a fellow named Josh Lambert, who lived in an adjoining borough called the Sunset Mesa. And he was really awesome. He's, he had like a carrot top, you know, full of spiky mohawk and crust style, you know, leather jackets and spikes. And, you know, again, this is a time when that was really unusual. Mm -hmm. And I really like punk rock and he was really energetic about it. But, and our other drummer, um, before James was uh, a guy named JJ Abdullah. <laughs> and uh, I know that uh, there was mention of him in uh, previous interviews, but he was awesome. Like when I first moved into my house there in Pacific Palisades, I didn't know anybody. And it's kind of like a quiet, like fo forest, forested kind of area. And I probably was like 11 or 12. And my my bedroom had a big window, like right on the street, and it was a quiet street with a curb. And I heard what sounded like a freaking like jet engine, like in the crisp, quiet morning, just like. <laughs> and I was like, "What? What? What the fuck?" Right? And, and so I look out my window, and here comes this this guy, a total skinhead. He had like a white t-shirt like sleeveless cut out with black flag bars like painted on it and this was like probably like early 80s or shortly after black flag even started i didn't even really know what punk rock was you know this guy had blue jeans on and like black converse and he's on a skateboard just hauling ass down the street and across from my bedroom there's like this embankment and it's like a blind curve too. Like a car could have totally come the other way and wiped them out. But this guy just totally ripped this crazy snap off this embankment, like a power slide. And then just kept going. I was like, whoa. It turned out that that was JJ Abdullah, like one of the only punk rockers within freaking 20 miles. <laughs> And I got to know him because sometimes I would walk down to the bus to school and there'd always be this this double story house with this guy just wailing at the drums. And the way his house was situated, it was like right in the middle of the where all these main streets curved around in this quiet neighborhood. And all the neighbors were always pissed off because this guy was like 24 seven practicing. But he's incredibly talented. Like he would practice to, like Kiss was one of his favorite bands, and Rush, like Neil Peart, you know. And that's like really quite a person to emulate on drums. And he really was getting that good. And eventually, I was like, wow, like JJ fucking Abdullah, you know. I I got it. And so we became friends. And anyway, he he was the first treacherous drummer. 
And uh, so, yeah, originally the lineup was totally different. But both those guys, Josh Lambert, he was a really cool singer. He had more of like a full-on crust sound, like, you know, like Discharge Conflict, really wailing, which was fine. Um, but eventually, uh, you know, there was some, some things like um, me and Josh were jamming a lot and playing a lot of parties and sometimes Josh couldn't make it or was late. So eventually we just said, well, maybe Josh should try singing. So then Josh took over on vocals. And then um, as far as JJ, uh, yeah, that was awesome. He was, he was pretty solid at the beginning. But I think because Josh and I went to school at Crossroads right. on the west side, and we met James there. And uh, we had a lot of long conversations about politics and like punk rock. And um, so he really gelled with us, like our belief system. And JJ kind of did too, but JJ really had a hard rock background. He was really into like Dio and all these metal bands. And so I think eventually we switched over to James, um, kind of like for the long haul. But I still did continue to play with JJ a little bit in another band called Nuclear Holocaust. So I never, I never could relinquish the JJ. He was always a big part of my life. <laughs> was Nuclear Holocaust? Did they put something out on the PJD label, or was that just before all of that? Uh, we were gunning for it. it. No, it was, um, it was in conjunction with my treacherous days, and uh, we had like a demo tape. And I really liked that band. You know, it was like JJ's full power metal drumming, but with a punk rock sound. I kind of think like Corrosion of Conformity or like a, a little slower version of Hyrax. But then you throw in those early metal bands that were almost kind of crossover, like Metallica and mm -hmm. um, Venom. Uh, but it was really instrumental and... Uh, we practiced a lot up in Topanga, which is like up in the woods. And But unfortunately, we never really got off the ground. It was really fun, though. I think we played a couple parties. Mm -hmm. Do you remember meeting Josh Hayden? Yeah, we met um, actually at Crossroads School. It was ninth grade. And uh, we had the same class of um, communications, media communication. And our teacher was a fellow named um, Jim Hosney. Josh and I were in, in, in Hosney's class, and Hosney was really anomalous for the time, especially teaching at Crossroads, which I think was like a private school. But Crossroads had a lot of kids whose parents were like directors and musicians and stuff. But Hosney, like people would see him at Black Flag gigs, and he would show like punk videos and Billy Idol videos in class and have the, the class like analyze them. Right. So we were all really wild by Jim Hosney. And then one of the lessons was about um, phallic symbolism with um, who, who's the guy who invented that? Like, I, it just escapes me right now. Hmm. Um, you, you know how I'm talking about the famous... Like Freud, maybe? Freud, yeah, Freudian phallic symbolism. And then I just raised my hand, and Jim Hosney said, okay, yeah, Quinn, I said, 
why is he obsessed with sex, right? And the whole class laughed. And then, <laughs> so after that class, Josh came up to me and was like, I was really funny. And so we kind of hit it off from Jim Hosney's class. There was only a few punk rockers at Crossroads at the time. And then it's like, yeah, I play bass, Josh said, and I was playing guitar. And then, yeah, we started jamming and then we brought James on board. I think like six months later. Mm -hmm. So this would have been like um, about 1980, I think, when I first met Josh. Fast forwarding to the, to this EP, I Love Bonita. This was recorded during the same sessions for Good Medicine, I assume? Yeah, it was. Um, just songs that wouldn't, they either wouldn't fit on the album or were kind of pushed down the road. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah, we, we made the, the EP. So the Madonna cover, was it a spontaneous thing you did in the studio or was it something you planned to do when you, when you were going in? You know, James, James Fenton, he was, he was really into Madonna. And, uh, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a real satirical interest he had in her, but actually I think he admired, I, I, I don't know if he was really <laughs> pulling all of our legs about this the whole time and joking, but he was in a Madonna uh, and then brought up the idea of La Isla Bonita. But of course, the way the lyrics are, um, it's actually a commentary on the, the farce of all that, like, you know, how nature was being destroyed by pollution and all this stuff. And then um, he was friends with Sylvia Joncosa, James and her. Um, I think they hung out uh, now and then or quite a bit and uh, so he brought her on board that song I think was better to have its own EP because it would have been like the the good medicine album where most of the other songs are on is crazy enough as it is if you threw La Isla Bonita in there people would have just been they fucking let's just throw this thing out the window I just don't <laughs> get it right so it's probably good it was reserved for its own EP. Yeah. Lyrically, I, I just suspect that maybe this song was chosen because of the reference to Pedro, and then you were able to use it as a springboard maybe to talk about some other Pedro, Minutemen, treacherous-related connections, like, you know, there's references to the Minutemen, New Alliance Records. Yeah, yeah, I think the lyrics in the song kind of encapsulate the scene that we were in at the time as far as like they even say um campos burritos like avocado burritos like there's a mexican there was a mexican restaurant in west la we loved called campos burritos they talk about the Minutemen. that was like our favorite band like every time we played we would see them we may have even played with them a few times i don't remember i know we played with firehose and dose so yeah we were um Really, really jazzed on the Minutemen, and uh, obviously a huge influence on the guys like George Hurley with James, and I think Josh and Watt hit it off really well because they had similar bass interests, and it may, maybe not the exact same style, but they were really into kind of like fusion rock punk and then, of course, Charlie Hayden was a legend. And mm -hmm. then 
I think Mike Watt was curious about that connection too. And then for me, like Dee Boone, like I'm a guitar guy and I love Dee Boone's rich treble and his passion and power. And when he passed away, it was such a crushing blow. I mean, especially to Josh, I mean, to all of us. And it really took um, a long time for, for everybody in the scene to kind of process what happened. And so, yeah, that was a heavy time. Um, but yeah, so the Minutemen were definitely one of our big influences, plus because they're like a power trio, right? And right. so we were constantly looking to them to how they pull it off for inspiration. And we, uh, our songs are a lot more kind of scattered than theirs, but I think with Josh and James, especially, especially you can probably hear some of that influence. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's a line in this song, seems New Lions took vacation away. <laughs> Any recollection about what that might be in reference to? Yeah, I think um, also in the song, I think I think James says NAR026, which is the record um, number, like NAR New Alliance Records. Yeah. That we were supposed, I think one of our albums or that album was supposed to be on, on New Alliance, and then that kind of fell through. I'm not really sure how. I don't know if New Alliance folded at that time or what. But perhaps, I'm not really sure, but I think perhaps that's what that line is all about. Like, you know, what happened to that. Mm -hmm. Did you personally ever go surfing with Sylvia? No, I, I really wish I had, too, because I know she was an avid surfer. And, uh, you know, it, it's really, uh, in retrospect, it's, it's a little tragic. I didn't really know her better. I mean, she was, like, really kind of, close to James and stuff as far as hanging out. Cause when I look back, like me and her were kind of in a parallel universe with the kind of stuff we were doing and interested in. Like I know she's, she spent a lot of time like hiking and nature and surfing to get inspiration. And she was a guitarist, but I never surfed with her, but um, we had a few gigs together and that was really cool. That was when I really was like, got to, kind of know her a little more and understand where she was coming from. And there's one gig I'll never forget. And uh, it must have been in L.A. somewhere, but we opened up for her. I uh, was into making my guitar like a surf kind of skateboard thing. Like sometimes I would stand on it and do 360s. <laughs> and then at this gig, before I put surf wax on it, not on the fretboard. <laughs> I wouldn't have been able to play it. Yeah. But on the whole body. And then um, it was a really hot summer night, and it was like a small club, I, maybe the anti-club. It was really hot. So after we played, my guitar was, it was starting to get soft, like from the wax. It was starting to melt. And Sylvia, something happened to her guitar, like, it was broken or I forgot what happened. It got stolen. And so she needed to borrow my guitar. And I was like, yeah, but it has surf wax on it. <laughs> and she's oh, well, that's cool. You know, that's, that's great. I surf. This is going to be cool. But unfortunately at that time, by the time she went on, the thing was fucking melting in her hands. Like literally <laughs> like one of these crazy 
um, zippy pinhead comics or whatever. And it's really hard to play because it's not like snowboard wax that makes it slick. Surf wax is you're supposed to stick to it. So the whole thing was sticky and seeing her try to play and move around on the frets. It was quite a show. She pulled it off. I don't know how. Uh, but, you know, at the, at, towards the end of her set, she's just laughed in the mic and said, you know, thank you, Quinn, for this axe of wax. <laughs> so that was kind of a highlight memory with my time with Sylvia. Uh, okay, the next track on the EP is Ezag. Uh, that's the good medicine track, Gaze Backwards, I believe. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think that came about because the gaze on good medicine has backwards guitar. Uh, and so I think that was Vitus or Vitus idea. Um, in the studio, it's like, well, how is it going to sound if we run this thing backwards since your guitar overdub is backwards, right? And so they did it. And we were like, whoa, dude, that's, you know, trippy, whatever. And so I think he ended up printing it. And then it was just kind of kind of like filler, yeah. but was kind of curious, a curious song that was more, um, um, how should I say, just like inter- pure entertainment. Yep. And then we've got Aiden Henderson. Who's that introducing Aiden? It could be Marshall Crouch. I, you know, I haven't listened to that EP in a while. Um, unfortunately, none of our albums are on CD or online anywhere. So mm-hmm. I don't, where I live now, I don't have a cassette player or a, a turntable. But I think it's Marshall, Marshall Crouch. And he was a close friend of ours that um, also kind of helped us roadie and stuff. And he's another guy that was instrumental, Marshall Crouch, as well as Aiden, but Marshall Crouch was one of the first guys we knew that kind of had a car. So he he was instrumental in helping us get to gigs and hauling our stuff around to, you know, practice. And he was an interesting guy because from the outside, he just kind of looked almost like an Ivy League, almost kind of like nerdy guy. But he was really into punk rock and he fit in with with us and really um, had a great sense of humor. And what I loved about Marshall is he was tolerant of all of our bullshit. Like I would get on my skateboard and stand on the roof of his car and roll down the windshield and down the hood and, you know, blast an ollie off the top. And he would just kind of laugh. And <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's Marshall Crouch. Yeah. And I think he was in some PJD bands too, maybe. Marshall Crouch, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that if you went through our PJD catalog, you might find him in some of the bands. Uh, you mentioned skateboarding and uh, and surfing as well. I know you were, by this point, already an avid surfer. Talk to me about, you know, skate culture and surf culture and, and the influence that had on you. Uh, yeah, pretty major influence um, on all of us. Like Treacherous, before we signed to SST, we had our own label called PJD, which is Palisades Juvenile Delinquents. And we were all skateboarders for the most part. We loved all those early boards. At the time, they weren't early, but, you know, the the Hosoys, the, the Zarlax, the 
the the alvas that now they'd probably be worth like 500 bucks a piece but yeah. we just blew through those boards because we were skating all the time you know this this was when boards you had like the yellow kryptonic magnesium trucks and we just ate all that stuff up we loved it and then um we would always drive around like especially in our town the pacific palisades because it's like mountainous and semi-rural so there's all these drainage ditches and canals that are all over the mountains especially up in a place called shucks i forgot secret spots all right anyway david travis lived up in oh, this area yep but there's these really epic bowls up there and uh so it was a real fantasy time for skaters because you would go up to these areas and there'd be like five different bowls within like a quarter mile that you just go and hang out all day and skate. And it was absolutely epic. And then as far as surfing goes, um, I wasn't even board surfing back then. I was really into bodyboarding, but, um, you know, the Pacific Palisades was right along the coast. So we were always hanging out at the beach. And I like a lot of surf music, like Lawndale on SST yep. was one of my favorite SST bands, which is a real testament to SST's eclectic um, openness to have a band like Lawndale on their label because it's, it's, it's pure surf music. I mean, these guys wore, you know, Hawaiian Aloha shirts and um, were really connoisseurs of surf music. Okay, the next song on here, have you ever seen the Sundance, recorded at the Sundance Saloon in Bozeman, Montana? Does the venue hold any significance? Like, is it some somewhere you played while on tour? Like, why why did yeah, you use you this? Know, why did you use this recording? Uh, you know, I think um, I think we used that recording because that was one of the gigs on one of our tours that really stuck out in our mind because um, of the unusual circumstance behind that show. Like we were booked like at this full on Western bar. It reminds me of when the Sex Pistols were booked in the Midwest somewhere to right. a bunch of cowboys. And I think they had to put up like chain link fence because they were throwing beer bottles at them, right, or something. Yeah. But so we, we, we rocked into this place and they're all cowboys and we're they're kind of shooting pool and we're looking at each other going oh man i i don't know you know they're playing like willie nelson on the jukebox and so i just said okay we're here you know let's do this and uh i don't even think there were any opening bands so it was just like trial by fire right we didn't even know what kind of music these guys liked other than what they're playing on the jukebox but when we started playing, they they started getting into it, you know. They started doing, like, not, like, square dancing, but, you know, they had their cowboy boots on, and, like, they were dancing around and just really stoked on it. And then um, afterwards, they just wanted to hear more and more, like, encore. And I think that that was, like, one of our encore songs. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, during that song, for me, towards the end where I have my solo, I broke a string, but my guitar had a tremolo system 
And I can't remember if it's the locking type or not, but it's the type that if you break one fucking string, the whole thing goes out of tune, like really bad. <laughs> yeah, I remember. So my guitar solo, is, yeah, so you listen to that guitar solo, and it, in my opinion, it, it sucks because it's out of tune. So I was kind of surprised that came out on the album, but for the memory, it's it, it, it was sweet for me to hear. And then after the our set, we, we were up to like the wee hours with these cowboys shooting pool and buying each other beers. And uh, so that was really awesome. <laughs> and I think that's probably how it made it onto the album, just because um, we brought home like a real um, special memory for that that gig and that song. Mm -hmm. uh, it was recorded, I believe, by Karen Bucklin, was she somebody for, at the venue or somebody that you knew? I think she was at the venue. She ran the soundboard. But yeah, Montana was is a beautiful place to go through. And I'm just really happy it worked out like that because, um, again, this is like mid-late 80s, um, and punk rock is still struggling. I don't want to say struggling for acceptance. We never wanted acceptance, but... but society at large was struggling with it like big time like they were still kind of trying to suppress it yeah so we were fortunate to be received better out in the rural america than a lot of places in the city where the cops would show up or jocks would show up and want to kick your ass yeah uh it says in the liner notes thanks to the hated for the amps i'm wondering if maybe they were on the bill yeah right i think that they probably open uh for us or um but they were a band that we really remembered as well because they were super cool and we shared a lot of the same interests and when we would tour like you have a lot of time after sound check, like before the show and stuff to talk to people. And you really kind of remember the ones that, that you gel with and have similar, if not similar beliefs, but you just really get along with. And they certainly were, mm -hmm. were a great band and, and mus musically too. Um, and it'd be really interesting to, to find out more about them and, and hear what happened to them. Cause there was a lot of, bands like us because we were kind of obscure that were touring around and um some of them kind of disappeared into the others and others morphed into other bands or what have you any other memorable shows that stand out from from touring like bands you would have played with or, or venues you played yeah yeah definitely um there's one show that comes to mind. It wasn't from touring, but it was in Los Angeles. Uh, we, we would play the anti-club a lot. And one of our gigs was a Monday night um, with DRI. Mm -hmm. and, and they were um, playing the release of their album, Dealing With It, which is like one of my all-time favorite hardcore albums. This is well before they got into like crossover. Right. And we opened up for them. There wasn't a lot of people there to begin with. And then by the time they went on, it was 2 a.m. on a Monday night. And the club was pretty much empty. It was just treacherous. 
our roadies and DRI and maybe two of their roadies. Like, and it was, they were not non-plussed at all. I mean, they put on a show just totally on fire. And it was like a private showing of dealing with it, DRI. And for me, that's, that's probably one of the most um, memorable shows. And, you know, I mean, I think when you hear what I'm saying, it's like nobody's in the audience. Nobody really cared. And then a few years later, you have Nirvana playing football stadiums. I think it goes to show how quickly the scene changed um, and that um, why a show like that is meaningful to me. Because I'm sure if DRI played now, it would be like, you know, Hellfest or something where I'd just be a peon way in the back row. Right. So. <laughs> this song, Have You Ever Seen the Sun Sunrise? is just a good example. And I think it's one of your songs of like, you know, all the, how crazy the songwriting was for treacherous with all just these ideas crammed into, into one song. And I'm, I'm curious about what, you know, what your process was both yours personally. And then, and the band more generally, like, did you demo on like a four track or something, or were you just sitting down and showing, showing this stuff at rehearsal to Josh and James? Yeah. So we weren't, like a jam band like it seems like 50 percent of the bands that we knew personally at the time would songwrite they would just jam right mm -hmm. and then bits and pieces would come up and they put it together and some bands really were successful like that but we were more calculated and so either josh josh or i would write a song we would record it like on a cassette and then give it to the other guy and then we would learn it and then go in with James and bring him on board. We were really calculated and we rarely ever came up with stuff by jamming. Like some of our songs had were, were jams, you know, like, but most of them were not. And uh, that's not to take away from bands that song wrote from jamming. Like one of my, kind of heroes from the time is named Eddie Greger and he was a close friend of mine and he led bands like um, SOS Shower of Smegma like in the very early days with Daryl Goldfarb on guitar, John Silverblatt on drums, eventually Steve Townsend came on drum but then he, then Ed Greger went on to other bands like Alter Drown, Animal and then Hedgehog and Hedgehog, because I've been to some of their practices, are a case in point about how you can jam and come up with incredible songs. Because you listen to Hedgehog, and their music is like, it's almost like technical, like death metal. It's really high-end technical music. And you would say, no, there's no way they could have written this by jamming but they would just jam and come up with these parts and keep repeating it and put it together which which just blows me away treacherous we could never do that we would never even fucking remember what we did 30 <laughs> seconds ago yeah. but i do want to point out on this before we move on and james mentioned it in an earlier interview 
is that our recordings on SST are our most anomalous work. And it's our earlier work and our work that came after it, which is actually a truer reflection of how we sound. And so it's a little ironic that when people hear us from SST, they get this idea of treacherous, when in fact, we usually, um, that was just like a year or two of our sound. I think we were together for like almost 10 or 12 years. But prior to that, our sound was more of a straight forward, like a punk sound, like we were really into like LA's Wasted Youth and like Discharge and, you know, a lot of bands that um, were changing their time signatures a lot, like Corrosion of Conformity. And then after SST, we became more of like a blues folk kind of band, like influenced more by like, for me, like, like Jimi Hendrix. And um, I was really into like Bob Wold, like Workbook. Mm -hmm. So the SST stuff, I'm not really fond of it, what we did with there. I like the, the message element. The message is, is loud and clear, which is great, like the political message. But the music, it leaves a lot to be desired. I mean, I have utmost respect for Josh and James. I think James especially was a phenomenal drummer. But the songs are like really um, kind of... Um, piecemeal like they start and stop a lot mm -hmm. um, there's a few rare ones that really shine out like long forgotten summer and even on la isla bonita josh's song love it has more continuity like josh's music on sst had continuity but my songs um they're very strange <laughs> i think for that reason it never really took off, you know. It's not really radio-friendly kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot going on in some of these songs. One of yours starts side two of the EP, it's called Sand, dates back to the fun tape. In fact, I think all of these side two tracks do, and much of Good Medicine as well. Do you know where the fun tape came out in relation to the SST stuff? Did it come out right before, you know, like the Sunrise EP or just previous to Good Medicine? And do you know if SST would yeah, have heard I that? Yeah, I think. Yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, I tend to think it. Some of the songs came out right before, and and or maybe, and some came out a little after. And it's like I hate to say I, I, I really appreciate that we were on SST, but our songs on our PJD tapes, that even the ones that are on the SST albums sound a lot different you know they're not as um kind of scattered and so josh if you're listening maybe get fun up on the treacherous Bandcamp site because uh, like our other tapes um if anybody's interested in treacherous just check out Bandcamp and some of our other tapes because you might be surprised of our other sound and if you want to hear anyone tape from our Bandcamp site. Check out our live in at Bunrati's in Boston, because I think that that tape, more than any other, 
is the example I would want people to hear when they remember us uh, musically. It's I think it's recorded off a soundboard. Back to what you're saying, yeah, a lot of our tapes were were passed to you know Mike Watt and made it to Greg Ginn and other people in the office there, and they ended up being recorded. And I mean, I'm I don't want to knock it. I am. I am proud of a lot of the work. I think some of the songs are good, but I think it made it more difficult for us to stick to memory because the songs on the SST recordings were were almost too uh, scattered, and there's too many changes. Like you don't, it's it's like you don't repeat like this melody, you know, because mm-hmm. it's changing all the time. And side two of this record, like you said, it's maybe been a while since you heard it, but the the mix is odd to me. It sounds like you're you're really low in the mix, the guitar. Oh, really? Mm. Um, may, maybe so, but uh, if even if that's the case, I, I think what happens is sometimes when I employ dynamics with distortion and clean, I notice that it might really drop out mm, sometimes mm-hmm. when yeah. it's clean. And, uh, and I, I, I should mention that this was uh, something that happened with our first EP, um, Sunrise, is that you notice the difference between Sunrise and Good Medicine as well as most of La Isla Bonita with guitars and treble. Okay, so Mike Watt is a bass man, and he kind of helped to pioneer our first EP with SST. And I think we recorded in in Venice. And so, you know, Treacherous were always playing kind of like a punk sound with, I always had like distortion. So when we get into the studio, we're about to press record, and Mike Watt came over and he turned the, the distortion off because it was built into my amp. And uh, I was like, okay, well, you know, I I didn't say anything. I just, I was just appreciative of the opportunity, right? And so what you're hearing on Sunrise is treble is really de-emphasized. And so the sound to me is strange. Like it's kind of a washed out, psychedelic sound and the bass is really cool the songs are cool i mean it still works but with um good medicine and also la isla bonita like my guitar was restored like as far as my sound right and so but i was still kind of new to dynamics like soft and distortion and so that might have dropped out a little bit on la isla bonita Mm-hmm. Uh, this one sand it it starts out with you know some sounds of the ocean like some gulls or whatever I'm not sure if that's something you sampled or if, if you recall but I'm curious about you know the the treacherous connection to like nature it, it's something you definitely touch on a lot in your music yeah so sand um, is an acronym for surfers against nuclear destruction mm-hmm. And that was a real um, organization. I think it came out of Australia. And I think Midnight Oil had something to do with that. But yeah, absolutely. We were um, really 
uh, concerned about the environment, and we would go to nature for inspiration as well as to try to figure things out. We came from, um, I don't want to speak for the other guys, but we, we grew up in a world that was really conservative. And um, there weren't a lot of people like us that weren't fitting into the mold. Like it was expected you're like a jock and like you're into Ronald Reagan. And it's only the punk rockers that kind of had a different belief. And so fortunately, we lived in areas with a lot of nature. So we would go out and spend a lot of time hiking and stuff like that. And then eventually, through that, we paid more attention to like, you know, Native American beliefs and what's going on with, with them. Because we started to kind of see more, perhaps, from their perspective. And so then we started realizing the importance of, you know, preserving the environment and making people aware of the tragedies that befell the Native Americans. And uh, for me, like Dee Brown's Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee was like hugely influential on my, on my thought system. Mm. And if anybody reads any one book in their life, you need to read D. Brown's Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee uh, because it's really going to change you. It's going to change your perspective and understanding of the United States and our history. Mm -hmm. But I, I do want to say one more story, if, if I might, about nature. It's not all of our experiences in nature were like, you know, you go hug a tree or whatever, like... <laughs> A lot of our times out in nature were pretty sketchy. Uh, and like one of our good friends from PJD was named Roy Miyake. And he played bass. And we would go out to a place called the Manson Caves that's out in a place called Chatsworth. And when Charles Manson was on the run from the cops, right. like, he would hide out in these caves. And so we went out there once with Roy and it's like hardcore. Like you enter into like this rabbit hole and you go way underground and there's like underground rivers and one part it's like straight out of the movie, the descent. I mean, you're freaking on your bellies and it's like literally like 12 inches wide for like 20 yards and you're scrimming on the dirt wow. and you're like, this is like earthquake Los Angeles too. And that's always in your mind. <laughs> right. And then there's one part where you're literally going down like a 45 degree angle and you have to put your feet up on the other wall or you're going to like fall. But at the end of this whole thing, it's a place called the Stoner's Den and it finally opens up. And by the way, the whole way there's arrow spray painted that lead to the wrong direction. So you have <laughs> to go with a knowledgeable guide. And that was Roy, right? Yeah. So then we get into Stoner's Den, and there's all this spray painting about Manson and stuff. And but it's this wide open space, so you finally like relax. And I, I think you smoked a joint or whatever. And then, and then so we exit. It's a different hole than you come up. And so we come up under this oak tree with a noose hanging right over the hole. 
and a sign that says no trespassing. And the other guys were kind of just stoked to be out in daylight, weren't really paying attention. But I was like, wow, I was looking around. <laughs> and sure enough, this dude straight out of deliverance comes like running over the chaparral with a fucking shotgun, like a sawed off shotgun. <laughs> so you boys don't believe in the law. Neither do I. And we're like, fucking, we started running and you start hearing and he starts shooting at us. What? Like, blam, blam. And we're like, you know, running zigzags, right? And so we're running down these trails. So, yeah, I mean, some of our trips to nature <laughs> play into our more, you know, hardcore ethos for right. sure. <laughs> okay, the next one you, you mentioned earlier is Josh's song, Love. And, and here, you know, some of the politics are coming in as well. I'm, I think you guys were pretty politically active also. It's a, it's a credit to SST. I would venture to say we were probably the most um, brashly political band on their label. And I'm not saying if that's good or bad. But we were kind of surprised that they were willing to sign us on because... A lot of our lyrics were something you would read from like Conflict UK or the Subhumans um, or Crass. It's just like straightforward political anti-political discourse, anarchist discourse. And um, SST really was a um, more artistic label. And a lot of our stuff was artistic too. So anyway, I just wanted to say thank you SST for giving us the opportunity to be on your label because we really didn't fit in as far as that goes. Even though most of the guy, the guys and gals and bands on SST probably totally agreed with us, right. probably 100% on most of that stuff. You know, you listen to like Saccharine Trust and stuff, it's much more um, nuanced, poetic, like stuff that we really dug, you know. But so anyway, moving on. Um, so the song Love was actually, we pulled influences kind of from when Minutemen covered, um, I think, Blue Oyster Cult, like This Ain't the Summer of Love. So we were, Josh and us were interested in using the framework of pop music to present a message and so it was like an irony like he did that really josh did that really well with detonate and this was kind of another example of that where we joke he jokes about um you know the summer of love you know rainbows and butterflies but in the meantime i think it's the end of the song he talks about all the wars that were going on in the world and all the political strife just like we have today in Washington DC so that's another song a lot of our songs were political but um, tongue-in-cheek and that's certainly one of them okay and then the record ends with one of yours Sunride and this continues the the long-standing treacherous obsession with the Sun like insidious Sun Sunrise helicopters in the sunrise have you ever seen the sunrise i was that intentional yeah i think the sun is was our main uh, kind of symbol that we would use as a refrain 
a lot of that came from a lot of Jimi Hendrix stuff, you know, because a lot of his his music also and his lyrics were about the rising sun. Mm, yeah. You look at the back of the cry of love, it's like a beautiful rising sun. And it's it's kind of a symbol for a lot of the youth at that time. It's a really dark time, just like today, like a very real threat of a nuclear holocaust. And especially when you're a kid, it's a lot to deal with, you know, and but there's always the the sun is always going to rise like at the end of the night, you know, and it's a symbol of hope and, and life without the sun. There's there's no life on, on Earth. So that became like a, a predominant symbol. And that song in particular, the lyrics I think would be the one song to listen to, to get like our message, if you will. It's like the stuff going on like right now with Ukraine, like it's unchanged, like the kind of stuff that we were singing about like 30 years ago or whatever, it's still going on. Yeah. And you listen to that song and the lyrics and it pisses me off that out of Eon, out of hundreds of years of humans evolving into this so-called modern Western societies, you have such a failure of leadership and so many immature, um, insecure people running fucking superpowers. Yeah. And I, I, I just... Um, it, it really bothers me to this day. And I think that that song, that's what that song's about. And, uh, I, you know, I see like people like Kim Kardashian and stuff that have a lot of social influence. And I just feel like, say something, do something. Like, we don't want to see your fucking yachts anymore. We don't want to see your fashion and stuff. Well, maybe most people do, right? But you think about the power that these people have they can go visit the Navajo reservation and help people raise money to help these people. I mean, so I, I'm sorry, I'm probably ranting, but <laughs> I think what Treacherous was all about was like, we have an opportunity to communicate something. What would you do if you could reach people, right? Yeah. So that's where, we, where our political message came in, and, and, and Sunride really encaps, encapsulates our message. Right. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, you're right. A lot of this stuff is still going on today. Yeah. I mean, doesn't it doesn't it bother you that I mean, obviously it probably does, but I, I just don't see how people can go on and keep singing about, you know, driving the, the Chevy to the levee and the levee is dry when when literally like we're on the brink of a nuclear war just beyond me. So mm -hmm the artwork that was used on the cassette tape and then on the back of the LP of the sun Terret actually was done by Rachel Stratton. Who, who's Rachel? Yeah. Um, we used to, um, hang out a lot with mustard, who is another PJD band yeah. up in a place called sunset Mesa. And, uh, Rachel was a gal who lived kind of across the street from them. I was friends with Rachel's brother, 
because he had a half pipe and we used to skate and hang out. And I went out with Rachel for a little bit. And then um, she was kind of like a friend with a band. And uh, she's really great artist. She's really into painting. She was another one of the early kind of punks from that scene, like Palisade scene. And and I, I should touch upon Mustard really quick, too, because talk about treacherous influences. We were at all the Mustard gigs, and they were at all of ours, like always front row. And we were always looking to each other, trying to figure out how to expand our horizons. So it's kind of interesting because our sounds were totally different. But we were really strongly influenced by each other musically. And Steve Townsend, the drummer for Mustard, recorded most all of our PJD cassettes and was a master sound engineer. Daryl Goldfarb, the guitarist for Mustard, I'm just so blown away by his talent. And he played for Eddie Greger's SOS. They were so young when they were playing like this technical punk that they couldn't even get into the clubs that were booked at because they were underage. Right. I mean, these are little kids. They, they barely fucking have pubic hairs, right? And so um, I, I just wanted to mention that Treacherous was just a small part of this PJD scene, which Mustard and Rachel and all these musicians and artists were a big part of. And the basis for Mustard, um, Sean Wheatley too, he's, he's, he has like this Mike Watt sound. He played a Rickenbacker. He was a student of Charlie Hayden for years. Like he went to Charlie Hayden's classes at SMC and was a real connoisseur of like clean, progressive punk, rock but they would also play like la bamba and all these party songs so i just wanted to give a shout out to the the guys at mustard for all their um influence on us Mm -hmm. what pjd bands were you in besides treacherous obviously um i mentioned nuclear holocaust and uh i was um just treacherous, you know. I know the other guys were in all these other bands like Oblitosaurus, like Oblitosaurus, Roy Miyake was on bass on that, and Eddie Greger teamed up with Josh and James for Out, yeah. which was kind of like a gone kind of band. But I, I didn't um, play with other bands until after Treacherous because, um, you know, if I wasn't actually playing, I was songwriting and... Uh, I respect those guys for finding time to do all that because they were super prolific, especially Josh. Like, I was kind of um, just the guitarist. I was kind of like a shy, kind of quiet guy. Josh was setting up all the gigs. He was kind of like the Greg Ginn or the Chuck Dukowski of the whole operation. He was he was making all the calls. He set up fanzines for PJD that had worldwide. We were we had bands that were from, you know, like foreign countries and stuff. And Josh was behind all that, mm-hmm. and uh, that was really cool. Um, so you mentioned post SST that you played with other bands. I I do want to ask you about some of those bands, but I want to ask you about 
post-SST Treacherous. I actually have a tape here that James sent me that's just amazing with songs like Green Lantern, Could Be the James, Crossing the Threshold. Uh, Could be the same. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Telephone Girl, Life is Lived in Vain. Yes. T- tell me about this era of, of Treacherous. So I think what happened was around the time of Good Medicine, the punk rock scene was starting to get ugly. Like, I, I would use the Olympic Auditorium in, in downtown L.A. It's sort of like the litmus test for what is going on in punk rock because it's this huge public venue and they had big bands come in there like discharge and you know and so we would go to the olympic a lot we saw all those big golden voice shows and there came a point where like the skinhead gangs started taking over and like the violence started getting extreme like there'd be these huge slam pits and you'd have like huge skinheads walking against the flow socking people slugging people and if anybody reproached them a whole skinhead gang would come out of the woodwork and literally beat people to a pulp well and we witnessed i hate to say we even saw somebody get raped on the floor of the olympic auditorium by a giant skinhead and Everybody was, it sounds wimpy, but nobody wants to be the guy to get their face pounded, right? And so nobody did anything. And I think at that point, I really saw a change in Josh. And he even told me around then that, wow, it's like minor threat, like Ian's like, I'm screaming in a wall that's never going to fall. Like Josh said, I feel like I'm just screaming and screaming. But look, like nobody's getting the message. And I think at that point, Josh and Treacherous, our sound started to change. It became more of like a kind of like exploring like existential, like introspective ballads, like on, you know, what we were trying to figure out like beyond like political messaging, how do people become i don't want to say fucked up i don't want to generalize but so anyway yeah we definitely changed Uh, we became more of a blues band there's a really strong element of folk and josh eventually abandoned the hardcore sound altogether to be one of the founders of slowcore which in a lot of ways was a rebellion against, I, I don't want to speak for Josh, I'm speaking from my perspective, was a rebellion against where punk, where punk was going. So yeah, Treacherous's later stuff, and again, I defer to our Bandcamp site, the Bunratis Live in Boston tape, to hear some more of our later ballad kind of songs, which are more poetic, I don't want to say Dinosaur Jr., but it definitely had more of a, like, emotional, if you will, quality as opposed to, like, political. And what about you personally? 
you know, after Treacherous split up, did you keep playing in bands? I moved up north and uh, I fronted a couple bands. One of them was called Solamente. Like I play guitar and sang on that. And then um, I eventually moved up to San Francisco and some of the PJD guys kind of took that route too, like Ed Greger and Daryl, a couple of those guys moved up to Santa Cruz. And then I ended up in San Francisco living with Daryl Goldfarb from Mustard and a couple other guys, this drummer, Mike Ash, he used to be in a band called the whales with one of the Hayden sisters, another PJD band. But anyway, so, um, up in San Francisco, I was playing a lot of music and, uh, I had a really great band with a girl called Kim Kyle and a, a bassist named Francis Bichetti. We were called, um, Kim Kyle and the Technicolor dream. It was one of my, I'm more proud of that than any other act. I mean, we really sounded like Blondie. I mean, we were really polished. I know, I don't want to, I mean, it sounds kind of stupid, but we had like this really radio-friendly new wave sound. But it was much better than Blondie. It's like Blondie meets like Nirvana or something. It was really cool. It was like new wave. And I've always been into like new wave music. But that eventually fizzled out, and so then I went solo. And um, if anybody wants to hear my solo work from that San Francisco period, then you can go to Bandcamp and my name, and I have my albums there. Mm. But then um, I, I was in college, I was working, I was playing music, and I was surfing. And uh, yeah things just kind of fizzled out. <laughs> right. Were you writing already by this point or when did you when did you get into writing? Yeah, so you know, interestingly James was always the real writer. Um he was always writing and producing these great books of poetry. One of them's called Virgo Diver. It might still be available. But yeah, then when I moved to San Francisco, I started writing. I started a publishing company called Fantasy Books. And uh I think going to college and becoming, you know, having to force myself to read all the time, I started getting appreciation for some of the literary masters. Like I was really into like Victor Hugo and Voltaire and Balzac and a lot of the French writers. And then so I started writing and then I started a publishing company. I started doing that more than music. I always wanted to do more music, but writing was something that I could control more. And I think that's why I started doing it more. It's like when you're in a band, it's literally being married to however many people are in a band. And who's ever married out there, you know, you probably know what I'm saying. Like, yeah, marriage is great and everything, but it's hard work, yeah. right? And so, but when you write, you control the, the world, you control the characters, you control the narrative. So yeah, I'm finishing up my 10th book. And then I had kids. And then once you have kids, if you're going to be a real dad, like, you know, a lot of stuff is not a priority. Yeah. Where can people find your books? And if someone wanted to read a Quinn Haber book, which one would you recommend they start with? Yeah, well, thanks for asking. Um, you can go to Amazon and just type my name. My name is really 
kind of singular like Quinn Haber. You'll see my books. And I think people that know me from my music side would be interested in a book called Tonkin because, excuse me, it, it takes place in Paris in, in 1889 when they built the Eiffel, Eiffel Tower. Like there was a big world's fair there. But I think old punks would be into it because there was also a lot of anarchism at that time that really threatened the French Republic at the time. Actually, the president of France at that time, named Saadi Carnot, was assassinated by, he was, he was not an anarchist, but there was a lot of anarchist threats. So anyway, this book, Tonkin, people might like it because it has kind of a lot of my punk rock influence in it. And then um, I have a new book I'm finishing up now it should be done by Christmas called Meridian 12, which is really cool because it's fully illustrated. Yeah. And it's more about like no contact tribes and how they deal with concepts like Christianity, as well as like global warming and, and rising water levels. <clears throat> and I'm not saying I believe in global warming or don't, but that's what the book is about. Okay. But one final note is, uh, I haven't quit music altogether, and uh, I now do um, like uh, electronica because I've always been into um, like keyboard music, like Depeche Mode, and New Wave, and um, I have my own um, post dubstep album now, and it's under Kark. It's spelled Q-A-R-K, yeah. and the album is called Open Circuit, and you can find it on Bandcamp. And uh, yeah, people should check it out if if anybody's interested in what happens to a, a punker once they get sucked up into the computer world. Then <laughs> I know it's kind of shameful, but check it out. <laughs> Definitely will. Quinn, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Really do appreciate it. Okay, yeah. Thanks a lot, Brant. I just wanted to, just before we leave, I wanted to give a shout-out to a few people. Um, Abe Gibson, he, he's writing a book called um, How to Blast Your Concept, the SST story. I think he's in You Don't Know Mojack, issue number 13. Yep. Anyway, Abe Gibson is doing a great job for the SST story. Also, David Travis, also known as Zippy, was one of the guys back then that was videotaping everything. And he was a real um, stalwart to the early SST and PJD scene. And thanks for you guys, too. You guys are doing a great job of documenting the SST catalog. Oh, thanks, Quinn. Appreciate that. Right on. Wow. Cool to hear from Quinn. Definitely still has got that pjd treacherous jay walker spirit in him full steam ahead right yeah all three of these guys do yeah i love it i love it i also love that you know so much creativity still it's like they had no choice they yeah. had no choice but to be creative artists and you know treacherous jay walkers was just kind of the building blocks for what they're all doing today almost yeah yeah well i i have a little thing about that too that i'm going to mention in a bit here on oh that, man on that subject but 
Uh, first, I, I want to recognize JJ fucking Abdullah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like my kind of dude. Like, yeah, I, well, I was wondering, like, if anyone knows that person and if if he ever made it into any skate mag, Brant would know. Like, <laughs> is this the first time you're hearing about that dude? Yeah, but I want to hang out with him, like, maybe go down to Stoner's Den. Yeah, I bet, right? <laughs> Except I don't want to go through those, like... The Manson Caves? Yeah, I don't want to I don't want to do what it takes to get down there. I just want to be, you know, just be down there. Yeah, the claustrophobia would kill me. Yeah, I'll go in that back entrance by the, the Where tree. the shotgun guy is? Yeah. The, the noose? Yeah. <laughs> uh, he mentions the gig that's up on their Bandcamp Bun Ratties in Boston. I can confirm this is an awesome set, uh, both the recording... And the set itself, it, it's got a lot of good medicine tracks like Gaze, Lost Thumbos, Have You Ever Seen the Sunrise, but also some killer post SST era tracks like um, Could Be the Same, Green Lantern, Stack, Aiden Spaceship, Crossing the Threshold, Breaking Heart, Men Who Ride Mountains. So all of these songs are on a tape James dubbed for me, which he titled Treacherous is Dead. So... I, this is kind of the spiel that I referenced. He sent me a bunch of tapes, PJD cassettes with covers and everything. He photocopied, you know, full fold-out inlaid J cards and everything. Wow. I'm going to send you a package of like some blank tapes, man. Yeah. Yeah. He, I, I need to hear this. He even created artwork for the, the Treacherous is Dead tape that has like the Grateful Dead skull you know, skull fuck or whatever they call their logo on it. Uh, and so he, he wrote on the J card for that one who recorded these later post SST era stuff. Unsurprisingly, the bulk of them uh, were recorded by Eddie Greger, July, 1989. Uh, it's definitely more focused than a lot of the SST stuff, but I wouldn't say it's better necessarily just different. Mm. Some, some of it is still political too, which, which I just love. You know, I, I just love the fact that they were so political and so engaged and motivated to participate and make change at such a young age. Like, there's a song on there called Indian, for example, that's just, it's such a good song. You know, like all this stuff, I really hope Josh finds the time to get the, the post-SST era stuff up on their band camp someday. Like, people really should hear it. These tapes James sent, I mean... Like I said, for starters, he sent full covers with double-sided inserts loaded with info, just like their SST releases, lyrics and all. He sent PJD-001, the Treacherous Jaywalkers Earth cassette. Wow. As the PJD press says, the original Beyond Core tape that started it all. We've talked about this one before because it's up on their band camp. Uh, Campos Mexican Food gets a thank you on the cassette liners, which, uh, you know, they mention in the title track of this EP. Uh, maybe that place was like their Alfredo's cause this tape was 85, 86 and, uh, right. La Bonita is 89. So they were rocking avocado burritos for, for quite some time. Wow. Uh, they thank Marshall Crouch and they credit him as number one roadie via the Buick Electra 225. <laughs> Uh, Rachel Stratton's on backing vocals on a track on that tape. We mentioned her in the interview. They say on the inside of the tape, inspiration, the Minutemen. 
Here's one that was especially cool for me to hear because I hadn't previously. It's not up on their band camp, although it should be. And that's their second tape, PJD004, Insidious Sun. I think it came out around 86. You can definitely hear a Black Flag influence, especially on some of Quinn's playing. Killer tracks like Screaming at Yourself, uh, a really cool instro called Skate to Fly with some Gone vibes, early version of Detonate off the Sunrise EP. There's a pretty gnarly song on here called Treacherous Jaywalkers. That's the name of the song. Treacherous jaywalkers were freedom achievers. Treacherous jaywalkers were nature's believers. There's a cover of Pills Pop Tones on there. Some live stuff recorded at Madame Wong's and at Skull Rock. Or Skull Rock 3, actually. Uh, a Crazy Dave Travis generator show, I believe. And, and one of the live tracks is the song PJD, which is, has a studio version on the, on the Earth tape. And they say, thanks, Chuck Dukowski, for kind advice and hardcore action. And then they think, they, they go, thanks to David Crouch, Otis, Neil, Nels, and everybody at Rhino Records, the haven for PJD freaks, along with Campos Mexican food. <laughs> Nels wow. is Nels Klein. Yeah, who worked, it would have to be. Yeah. But then, Ryan, we go to PJD006, the 86-87 tape, Fun. So this one has on it early versions of about half of what ended up on Good Medicine, including mm -hmm. Gaze, Have You Ever Seen the Sunrise, which are both on the La Isla EP. And as I believe I mentioned in the interview, all three of the tracks on the B side of this EP uh, are on earlier versions on that tape. He sent some other PJD stuff, like um, recordings of the Love Supremes, which is Vetus Matare's Stones cover group. Like, I don't think Vetus was actually in the band. He might have been, but he basically act, acted as producer. We talked about them at some point. This stuff is all unreleased that he sent me, as far as I know. The only released recording is on a Norton record split with the Dirt Bombs of the song Sing This All Together on a series of Stones tributes Norton yep. did. James plays Tabla on that. Here's what James told me about the Love Supremes, though. The Love Supremes was F uh, Fast Freddy's project with friends from the old Rhino record store on Westwood Boulevard, which broke off amicably from the Rhino label in the mid-1970s. Freddy formed the band with Zachariah Love, the rock buyer, and Damon Charlotte, the blues or oldies buyer. DJ Bonebreak, one of many, many Hollywood punk-era friends of Freddy's, played Vibes and Marimba in the band, too. Which technically means I actually made it onto a recording with one of my drummer heroes, the drum god of X. A lot of cool people worked at the store, like Nels Klein, who was the indie import buyer. A job I took over when he left the store to focus full-time on his music. I used to get periodic trippy calls from Spaceman while at the store, not knowing whether it was Watt or Whitaker. <laughs> <laughs> I remember seeing many amazing bands there, like Nirvana, Tad, Soundgarden, Jawbreaker, and hosting in-store appearances with Per Ubu's David Thomas and Husker Du. A classic New Day Rising era promo pic of the Huskers is of them in the Rhino store from their visit that day. A hand-painted sign for the jazz section looms over their heads in the pic. 
I have a group shot of everybody taken out front of the store with the Hooskers somewhere. But I was the schmuck who stayed inside to run the counter while the shot was taken so I couldn't be in it. I worked at the store, Josh did too, along with Marshall Crouch and my younger brother Mark, throughout the life of Treacherous. That's where we met Freddie, who worked there. He is not buying the Rod Stewart LP in the photo insert of Good Medicine. (laughs) It looks like it. What is he doing then? He was probably restocking it as the picture was taken while he was working. (laughs) And this is in reference to the shirt he was wearing. Also, the Albuquerque Dukes were a minor league baseball team who were an affiliate team for the LA Dodgers. Lots of guys who worked at the store loved the Dodgers and baseball, playing it and going to games all the time. To this day, I'm still in touch with former Rhino store manager David Crouch, Marshall Crouch's older brother, who was coming out to Colorado sometime this summer to see a Dodgers-Rockies game. Zachariah Love and Freddie still go see games. Baseball is in their blood. These guys are like my cousins or big brothers. When my then-wife and I and our 10-month-old daughter were evacuating New Orleans... Under the threat of Hurricane Katrina, the first phone calls I got from non-immediate family were from Dave Crouch and Freddie, asking if I was okay and if I needed anything. That's the kind of stand-up people they are and always have been. It's just a shame that we're also spread out around the country. Mm. So that's awesome. I love that. And, you know. Yeah, good one. This tape, this Love Supremes tape, really cool 60 Stones covers. You've got the silver, Salt of the Earth, both songs that Keith sung, actually. Uh, and DJ Bonebreak, you can definitely pick out his vibes mm. on those songs. Yeah, I love the Keith songs in the Stones catalog. Oh, yeah, man. He also sent me, Ryan, PJD12, the self-titled Shower of Smegma tape. <laughs> SOS. <laughs> yeah. Daryl Goldfarb is just a total riffmeister on this. Uh, it kind of musically reminds me maybe of when Daglo Abortion started to really put some metal into the mix, like on Here Today, Guano Tomorrow, which oh, is yeah. <laughs> the only Daglo Abortions record I can listen to. Uh, Eddie Greger on vocals and bass, T- Steve Townsend on drums, Sean Wheatley on bass for some of it, John Silverblatt on drums for some of it, and I think maybe James on a track. The liners on the cassette are were handwritten and are kind of hard to read. Apparently, they were like 14 when they started this band. I'm not sure, you know, how old they were when this tape was recorded, but I think, you know, pretty young. And the musicianship is just off the charts. So impressive for any age, Mm -hmm. never mind if they were 14. It's really a shame this isn't more widely available. It looks like a CD LP did come out in 2010. Like maybe some or all of these tracks. It looks like it anyways. Also on that CD is some stuff recorded by Phil Newman at Spinhead in 84. So that's on my want list now because this Shower of Spangma stuff is really cool. PJD003, Alter Drown, Are You Animal? Are You Machine? Looks like that one circa 86. This is Sean Wheatley on bass, John Silverblatt on drums, and Eddie Greger on guitar and vocals. And it rules super hard. I've mentioned this one before. It's up on YouTube, so you can you can find it and listen to it there. It is like ground floor crossover stuff. You know, people would totally eat this up. Like I said about last week about the sex execs, in an era where it seems like everything gets reissued, you know, other than maybe deluxe editions of the Black Flag catalog, I can't think of anything I'd rather see get 
some sort of updated release other than the the PJD catalog. Mm. It's definitely ripe for some amazing box set. Yeah. This is just me saying this, but I feel like the three biggest bands, you know, on PJD were Treacherous, Hedgehog, and Mustard. Mustard, yeah. Mustard might have had the most releases on the PJD label, and you can hear them remixed and remastered, some of it, I think all of it actually, the PJD stuff on their Bandcamp page. Again, Sean Wheatley on bass, Steve Townsend on drums, Daryl Goldfarb on guitar. James sent me a CD, actually, from 1996 called Mostaza on Sunspot Records, whose only other release is a disc called Surfabilly Rock by the Rick Lawndale Band. Looks like possibly Mustard's only release that wasn't on PJD, and I think they're only one on CD. Uh, the early stuff, the playing is exceptional, especially considering their age. There's a definite, definite Minutemen and Meat Puppets influence, but that's not to say it's derivative at all. It's also super eclectic and creative. It holds up super well. This disc is a little more consistent as far as the songs sounding similar. I'm not saying that's a positive or a negative. I'm just saying that they, they maybe dialed in a sound a bit by this point. Hmm. Not sure what the status of the band was by this point in 1996, if they were together that entire time, or maybe this was a, a reunion thing, I'm not sure. Either way, it's really, really excellent, so hopefully they put it up on their band camp too. James also sent me a PJD 7-inch, PJD 028 from 1991 of Mustard. Three songs, Song for D, which is exactly what you think it is, uh, along with Burn the Green and Groovy Waters. You can hear all three of, of them on their on the band camp as well from this single. Check out the song Groovy Waters from Mustard and you'll you'll see what I mean about the the Pops vibes. I can't thank James enough for, you know, the care he put into this, making this package and making the covers, dubbing it all. What a treat. I'm you know, at first I was somewhat satiated by by my appetite for PJD, but at the same time it also just made me want to hear more like i need to hear oblitosaurus animal <laughs> urinalysis smiling jesus linus on fire caustic soil hedgehog ralph's eviction nihilist pvhc the cleaners i want it all ryan also be sure to check out quinn solo stuff from his san francisco days that's up on his band camp along with his electronic project quark q-a-r-k uh, which has its own page Super fun exploring all of this stuff this week. Yeah. As you mentioned earlier, Ryan, before we move on to the tracks, I just want to say something about the three treacherous dudes, which is, you know, true of so many of the people we've spoken to and definitely of them. Some are still involved in music to varying degrees, like, you know, Josh, for sure, still yeah. super active. But those who aren't, almost all of them are still creating in various ways. And I'm not just talking about these three guys, but so many of the people we've talked to. Painting, engineering, acting, and in the case of Quinn Haber, writing. Uh, as he mentions in the interview, he's completing his 10th book, and many of his others seem easy enough to find. I just ordered the one he recommended in the interview from Amazon, Tonkin, so I'll report back on that. He has a trilogy called The Somal Somali Pirate, Another trilogy called uh, the Volcano Trilogy, which seems to be 
autobiographical about his adventures in the Philippines, which is where he lives now, surfing, meeting his wife, etc. So that's super cool. Got me thinking about some of the SST alum that are, you know, have gone on to writing. People like Chris D or Kenny Lyons or... Henry Rollins? Yeah, Henry Rollins. Just so many people, Ryan. Yep, that they had to create. Mm -hmm. They've got something in them that needs to get out. That's awesome. Yeah, he also in the interview mentions James did some writing. I asked James about his writing, and here's what he told me. He goes, I used to write poetry and short prose pieces and illustrate them with pen and ink, painting, woodcuts, or mixed media, then collect them into little chapbooks, kind of like the ones I used to admire at City Lights Bookstore in North Beach, San Francisco. That reminds me of another person, Jack Skelly from Lawndale. Does a lot of writing still to this day. He goes, my mom worked at the Rand Corp a government think tank in Santa Monica across the street from the legendary Santa Monica Civic Auditorium where I first saw Black Flag and my older brother saw Ziggy Stardust era Bowie. My mom's office was just down the hall from Sylvia Jenkosa's dad, who was always cheery and friendly and liked to talk about super complex math he had scrawled on a chalkboard above his desk, which left me utterly stupefied. Jordan Schwartz did some kind of work there too, after Global, I think. Being so shy, I never even said hello to him, though I saw him often when I got a job there working in the printing department. This position enabled me to print and manufacture books of my art and writing on the sly. I would leave them in the lobby of clubs Treacherous played in at the Rhino Record Store and hand them out to friends. After a while, Eddie Greger put together a collection of his lyrics and poetry, printed them up, and suddenly we added these to the PJD catalog. The artist Eric E. Johnson, who attended Crossroads and is was in the band Sissy's Progress, which sadly wasn't PJD, but we were friends with him, and Damon Huss from Blue Garden, or sorry, Blue Garden Blue, Treacherous's favorite band friends we played parties with early on. Anyway, Eric made a series of wonderful books of photography and drawings, and often humorous writing, under the Damon Inc. imprint. One was called Henry about some old man that he met on the street and what a funny Bukowski-like guy he was. He would take his books to sell on consignment at certain bookstores in Hollywood, and he would take a few of my titles too. Virgo Diver, which was not exactly a Dio reference, was a more elaborate production that I spent a summer doing. I had designs on being a small-scale bookmaker at one point, but that, like so many ideas, didn't pan out professionally. So... One thing he did send me, though, Ryan, if I can find it on all this stuff in my desk, along with those tapes, was this, a PJD zine. Wow. Called James Spiels. And you, as you can see, it's written in the Firehose font. Yeah, nice. You've, you've got the PJD logo here in the back. It's got a lot of these woodcuts in here that he mentions and uh, a bunch of photos. There's a little snippet in here, Ryan, of a looks like an advertisement for a cancelled gig with the Minutemen, Saturday, hmm. January 11th. I'm assuming, you know, 1986? 1986, yeah. yeah. Ooh, uh, bummer. It says, the Minutemen, cancelled. We offer our condolences to the family, friends, and band members of D. Boone. Mm-hmm. There's uh, lots of drawings, doodles similar to the artwork 
James did for the good medicine insert. There's lyrics for, you know, like good medicine's vision pit, for example. The centerfold part is just a giant sun across two pages like that. Oh, yeah. Yep. Uh, the lyrics to La Isla Bonita are in here. I'm guessing maybe James wrote them. He seemed to be the connection to both Sylvia and Madonna. It lists in here other books from PJD. Um, Arcanine Alias, 84-85. Grimace Proportions, 85. Water Dish, 86. Those are all by James. Blood of the Earth by Edward Joseph Greger. Thanks to, let's see, The Fast Man with a P. So that's Fast Freddy. Oh, yeah. Das Daman gets a thank you in the book. Uh, there's This is cool, Ryan. I'm going to read you a poem in here called Four Speed. Dude, jam. My vans floor it to the Fairfax off-ramp. Can't you understand? Tom Verlaine is God right now, and you know right now will go on forever. Stripping these gears, car roof shelters past ocean's tears. We will head on. No money in hand, all the love our heart can stand. Horizon line and reach. Late night beach. Pump gas, smoke grass, come in last. Burn out fast. A life past. Dude, in need of a tune-up. The winter causes us to freeze, left to wait for the melt of spring. Waves send us out, tide draws back, gone and back. Scrape knees on the skate grind down government traits. Cruise to work, jet phaser tape deck, CD cassette, crazed and deaf. Never look to the sky, clouds above pass by look ahead. They never look out into the sky. The sun would rise and set a million times in their life without them aspiring to figure reasons why to attempt to try, burning up unleaded to pave a way, humbled back to, sl to the slow lane, always that way, man, I bought a piece today, hop in my car today, hey, look at that VW, guy staring up at that way, aim and blow his life away. Ooh, solid. Four speed. That's solid. Yeah. It's a cool little book, man. Let's talk about this album though, Ryan. Yeah, man. History Lesson, Part 2. So it came out in 1989 on 12-inch EP and cassette. None of this stuff ever came out on CD. None of the treacherous stuff. Right. Uh, it, the liners say recorded at Electric Lyceum Land, which I love. Spring 1988 by Vetus Matare and produced by Fast Freddy. So these are tracks left over from the Good Medicine sessions. It starts out with side fast. P-H-A-S-T. Yep. yep. And it's the title track, La Isla Benita. This song, at least the music, melody, and the original lyrics were written by Madonna, along with Patrick Leonard, a frequent and longtime collaborator of hers, and Bruce Gage, uh, a session musician she worked with quite a bit. It was the fifth single released off of her third album, 1986's True Blue, the lyrics tell the story of a fictitious, beautiful island, which is what La Isla Benita translates to, uh, and the island's called San Pedro. It was written as, as a Latin pop song in the style of the Gypsy Kings, who she name-checked in interviews referencing this song at the time. The first stanza of her version is really the only lyric that matches the original from this one. 
the rest of the TJ's lyrics are references to some of their environmental and political causes. Uh, Contras, famine and disease, jet fighter, arsenal, raped the sky, hot oil spill in the sun, all of nature in captivity, nuclear bombs are falling, etc., etc. And avocado burritos. Yeah, the, the rest of the references are to the Minutemen, Pedro, the scene, like, and when the Minutemen played... New Alliance gets a mention, and as uh, Quinn points out in the interview, James says NAR026, which I'm not sure I would have picked out if he hadn't mentioned it. His thinking was that had possibly been earmarked as a TJ uh, release. This release has the New Alliance like font yeah, all over it, right? Yeah. Well, there were ads that Josh sent me, you know, posters saying, watch for our upcoming release on new alliance this is pre uh sunrise mm. uh but you know if you look at the timeline uh 026 is descendants grow up which came out in 85 which is obviously the year d boone passed away and then there's only a few more releases after that that came out in 86 nothing in 87 which would have been around the time watt probably sold new sold alliance, it sold it yep. again yeah um which is when the Sunrise EP came out on yeah. SST. That's the change right yeah. there. Yeah. It was in, you know, it was, it was when D Boone passed away, man, that had a huge effect on a number of aspects of that community. And one of which of course was new Alliance. Yeah. Who knows what, what would have come out on new Alliance too, if it would have been what ended up coming out as the Sunrise EP or something different. Yeah. I was thinking though, you know, you mentioned James as the connection to Madonna this is not the first time that we've had Madonna on the show, though. Like, just think about Chaconi Youth and Watt mm-hmm. and Thurston. And, you know, an argument could be made that, you know, Madonna was part of Watt returning back to music. Yeah, for sure. Well, there's a, a Watt reference on this LP that we'll get to later when we get to the artwork that's, I think, a nod to that, you know? Oh, I would say so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I've, speaking of what, a few other uh, Minutemen type references in the song, in the in the TJ's lyrics, they say when it's time to cast ballots. Yeah, ballot result. Yeah, of course, as you mentioned, they talk about avocado burritos, the Mexican restaurant in West LA, Campos Burrito, I think James said it was called. My favorite line in the song is, "We played in clubs where punker dudes told us to play so fast." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there's some guests, uh, just credited on the record, but I, I'm assuming they're all on this song. Uh, Sylvia Giancosa, for sure, you know, is credited uh, with mandolin and Madonna vocals. Her vocals are so atonal on yeah. this track. It's weird, right? Because, like, Sylvia could have sang it more tunefully, but didn't. It's yeah. an odd choice. Kind of reminds me of Kim Gordon a little bit sometimes. Yeah, I wonder if it's intended to sound a little... I don't know, tongue in cheek, like, because it is a bit of a, I don't want to say a parody, but Sylvia is not trying to sound like Madonna, I guess. Yeah. I love the story Quinn told about her playing his uh, axe of wax. (laughs) (laughs) I was just thinking of, you know, that, that surfer wax, Mr. Zog's sex wax, that stuff just dripping off the guitar and gumming up the strings and stuff. Yeah. 
like I said, they're not credited directly for this track, but I'm assuming this is also the one that has Marshall Crouch on vocals and percussion, Steve Townsend percussion, Fast Freddy on vocals. It just has a very live in the studio feel with lots of, you know, hooting in the background, etc. Yeah, it's it's a loose track. When you yeah. think about how technical the TJ songs usually are with so many different parts, this one feels really loose. Yeah, uh, at first it comes off as kind of a jokey throwaway, but it kind of sticks with you. Like, I was walking around all week going, last night I dreamt of San Pedro. Were you? Oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Uh, and then speaking of throwaways, I hate to say it, but the next one's kind of filler. Ezag, yep. Uh, yep. which is yep. the uh, good medicine track, Gaze, backwards. Uh, speaking of Primus, we apparently have Les Claypool introducing uh, fruit enthusiast Aiden Henderson. It sounds exactly like Les Claypool. <laughs> it's like, Lanny's a gentleman. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Some backwards tape manipulation, though, I yeah. guess, right? Uh, Aiden's, you know, letting us know uh, we should live a life uh we can truly be proud of and that this is his third vocal appearance and that the record took a lot of work. That's what he says. Yep. And then we have uh, a live track. Have you ever seen the Sundance? It's a Quinn song, which is the studio versions on good medicine, but here it's called, have you ever seen the sun sun dance instead of sunrise sunrise? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it switched to Sundance because it was recorded live at the Sundance Saloon in Bozeman, Montana on August 31st, 1988 by Karen Buckland. Uh, Josh dedicates it on the album, like he says this from the stage, to the very fine club called the Sundance. Uh, and this guy who Quinn met in the van, I think is what he says. I'm not sure what he's referencing there. I should have asked Quinn. Uh, this one also has some Latin vibes to it, uh, you know, before it kicks in. As Quinn mentions, uh, his guitar is slightly out of tune uh, for the solo at the end, but it's not that bad. I'm not sure I would have picked that out if he wouldn't have mentioned it. Yeah, it's not so bad. It did make me like really, really zero in on that picture of, of Quinn and his guitar on the insert. Yeah. You know, it looks like an Ibanez with the Floyd Rose and like 14 pickups Yeah, on on the guitar. So, I mean... For those who know those guitars, and I don't by any stretch, I do know that those Floyd Rose things were really, you know, you had to really strike the right balance or else you're screwed. Yeah, I had one in the 80s. But I mean, like, uh, and you can't just swap a string out on the fly and with one of those. No, no. But like, I was looking at that guitar. It's almost shaped like a Mosrate. It's a really weird looking guitar. Yeah, I'm not sure it's an Ibanez, but it's the closest thing I could think of. I, I, I wouldn't have said Moserite, but... Well, it's definitely the, not a Moserite, but it's, it's no, kind of shaped like one. It has a bit of a, you know, an off-center. But I mean, like a Moserite, the larger horn would be on the bottom. So, yeah. but I can see what you mean in terms of the way that the the, uh, the pickguard is styled and the curves on the horns. Those yeah. aren't, those don't seem like Ibanez. It's something else. Yeah, Ibanez guitars in the 80s would have been way pointier than that. Totally. Yeah. With a hand with a handle in it and stuff like that. <laughs> Neon. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh and then it says in the liner notes, thanks to the hated for the amps. So they were an Annapolis, Maryland band, active eighty four to eighty nine. They had some self released albums and singles, a few on Vermin Scum Records, which was run by Kenny Hill, the drummer of the Hated. 
they had uh, one cassette, a comp later on in 1992 on the Simple Machines label. They have a Bandcamp that looks like it just went up this year. It has a bunch of stuff on it. Um, they describe themselves on there as the original emo band. I don't know about that, but th there are major, major Husker Du vibes going on with The Hated. But it's good. People should check that out that listen to this show. They'd like it. The Hated. Then we're going to switch over, Ryan, to Side Vetus. Yes. So the first track here is Sand, uh, a song written by Quinn. On the fun tape, it's actually written S-A-N-D with you know, as an acronym, Surfers Against nu Nuclear Destruction. Like many of their songs of this era, it has multiple parts, uh, but I love it. All of the band members have expressed similar sentiments to us about, you know, how the the SST era is a poor representation of their overall sound. Yeah, they they respect it, but it's almost like they want to disown it. Yeah, I get what they're saying, especially now, you know, that I've heard everything or almost all of it that came before and after mm -hmm. on these tapes. But, you know, so I, you know, I guess I have a clearer picture of, of, of the whole, the whole arc of the band, but I still think the SST stuff is great. Yeah. Nothing can touch the sunrise EP for me. Yeah. I love Josh's vocals on this song. Lyrically, it's kind of what we've come to, to expect from treacherous man and civilization is leading to total destruction is a lyric. I think Quinn says in the interview, they were the most brashly political band on SST. And there is zero doubt about that. Speaking of the sunrise EP, I remember Josh meant mentioning the politics to me. And I, I think I said something like, did you consider treacherous a political band? Like full disclosure, when we did the Sunrise EP, I had not heard Good Medicine or this EP. Yeah, we had no idea, I guess. Hey, well, I, I'm pretty sure three quarters of that EP is instrumental. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, I mean, these guys were, you know, wearing their politics on their on their sleeves. Uh, the next track is Love, written by Josh. James just comes thundering in. He really is a superb drummer. Uh, sometimes when Josh goes up to his upper register, like he does on this one, it reminds me of Nardwar in the evaporators. And I don't mean that as a criticism either. I love Nardwar. <laughs> Very bass heavy song, this one, uh, which makes mm. sense since it's, you know, it's a Josh song. Yeah. And this track love has got just a little snippet, a little, uh, call out to that song strangers in the night as well too, right? That, uh, Frank Sinatra, song i was looking into that <laughs> strangers in the night 1966 came out uh, not written by sinatra written by some folks uh bert camford charles singleton and eddie snyder i don't really know much about them but strangers in the night went to number one like a bullet to the billboard hot 100 chart and the easy listening chart and won three grammys in 1967 can wow. you believe that I, I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, there's a part in the song where it goes, do, 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 do. like, right. There's a, it, it comes and goes really, really quick, but it's the song strangers in the night. Weird. Yeah. I'll have to listen for that. Okay. And then we go to the last track sunrise, which or sorry, Sunride, which is a Quinn song. Mm -hmm. How many bombs does it take to set a country free? The lyrics just come out in the first minute and a half of this song kind of just bursting out. 
you know, almost like a diatribe. And then the remaining two and a half minutes of the song are kind of just shifting multi-part instrumentals. And then at the end of the song, Quinn kind of returns to this cool plucked solo guitar piece that he starts the song with. You can hear some of this on YouTube, like the title track. uh, And you can hear the songs Love and Sand, but I couldn't find the rest. I didn't look too hard. Maybe it's out there. But again, this is another lost SST uh, EP, kind of a lost SST band. A little bit. I mean, they. I think it's fair to say that Treacherous were one of those bands, one of the much maligned bands of this era of, you know, not worth your time, but you're, those people are so wrong. Yeah. I'm bummed that Gin dropped treacherous man it would have been cool to have an album with some of that later stuff Mm -hmm. or even to have sst reissue some of that earlier stuff like they did with other bands yeah the artwork ryan it's different on the cassette and the lp we'll do the lp first we've got that cover photo of sylvia Juncosa, shot by david winogrand of two damascus yeah sweet ukulele headband beads surfboard is it a ukulele? Because she plays mandolin on this song. I'm assuming it's a mandolin. Uh, it looks. It sure looks like a ukulele to me, man. Yeah. I mean, a mandolin has eight strings. This has four strings. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then on the back, we've got that sun tarot drawn by Rachel Stratton, which is the cover of the cassette. Uh, it That looks like a woodcut. Yeah. Has, has that type of vibe for sure. A couple of you know, cherubs dancing and then that sun. Yeah. Like most of the treacherous stuff, it's got some good liner notes. Aiden says, don't let nobody sell you this EP at LP price. Yeah. There's a plug on the insert for supporting Greenpeace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some great photos on that insert. Uh, You've got the drawing in the upper left-hand corner. That's by... Rachel Hayden. Yeah. It says uh, on the beach towel there, tan, don't burn. Yeah. That's uh, one of Josh's sisters, the the Hayden triplets that drew that. Uh, And then I'm thinking beside that, we've got maybe Fast Freddy. I think so too. The goatee gives it away. And he's got that beatnik necklace on too. Well, I mean, that beatnik necklace kind of looks like a saxophone strap to me. Yeah, but there's a necklace on underneath that too. Oh, like the tiki thing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's what you mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like it looks like a like a horn strap and the tiki necklace, yes. And like the what do you call that? Those aren't sunglasses. Those are like uh what, what kind of lenses do you call those? I don't smoke, know. Smoke like smoked out lenses. Yeah. It's got to be him. Yeah. Not sure who's beside him. Maybe you know, the next two people are maybe, you know, Marshall Crouch or Steve Townsend. We've got Josh playing a, I don't know what kind of bass that is, Ryan. Yeah, you know that I know that he's rocking a Yamaha there. Right, right. In, there's a, looks like a PV amp in the background. I was trying to read his shirt. It says support something, something. I can't read it though. Yeah, I'm assuming that's Vetus with his hands up in front of his face just because it's in the studio. Yeah. Uh, we've got Quinn. We already talked about that. I'm pretty sure that's James sitting down reading. Mm-hmm. And then 
again, probably either Marshall Crouch or, or one of those people, Steve Townsend. And then that's Aiden in the van shirt and the shower of smegma hat flipping the bird. Yeah, nice. Notice how Josh and Quinn, they're both rocking on stage in like board shorts. Yeah. They just probably, you know, toweled off and just jumped on stage. Love yeah. that. The LP label has a pic of Madonna wearing her Italians Do It Better shirt, and then she's holding a baby, but instead of the baby's face, it's <laughs> a cut and paste of Watts' smiling face. Yeah, and I mean, all of that is superimposed on what I think is a picture of Mary, right? Yeah. And, and baby Jesus, the Madonna yeah. and baby Jesus. But instead, it's Madonna, Madonna? and Mike Watt as baby Jesus. Yeah. So that might be one of the best B-side labels of all time in the entire SST catalog. It's up there. We've, I like how they put the the PJD logo still on all of their SST releases too. Yeah. Yeah. We've got some dead wax even Ryan. Yeah. Should I hit it? Yeah. Here we go. Okay. So side a says from the Palisades to Pedro. Love that. And then side B says, Aiden saying, together we can help the earth survive. All right. Ballot result time, man. Ballot result. So I gave it away somewhat before. I mean, my interests on this record lie firmly on the B side. And my favorite track by a long shot for me is Love on this EP. Yeah. I I do like the title track, but... Uh, you know, mine would have been one of the three on the B side as well. So let's do love. It's a good one. And Quinn, oh, uh, yeah. Quinn references in the interview too, that it's one of his faves. The lyrics are awesome, man. They yeah. are just like, it's just, you know, this uncontrollable political vibe and the music is so intense. I love it. Yeah, man. I've had so much fun getting into the, these treacherous releases, you know, uh, and there is a good example of a band I probably never would have checked out were it not for this podcast. Oh, yeah. And, you know, without having these guys on, there's just so much detail on these records that we never would have known anything about. Oh, yeah. Every treacherous release, I go, okay, let's go see what I've got, you know? What do I got? What can I find, you know? And, it, and I mean, there's kind of, you know, the same articles online that we've we've touched on before, like the Dave Lang article and, and whatnot. And the only, the only new thing I can find is in Jim Rulin's book. Yeah. So, so that is, uh, that's awesome that we finally have got something out there on, uh, the TJs and, uh, looking forward to hopefully getting some more in Abe Gibson's book. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Thanks to Josh for still being kind of the organizer type of guy. Quinn for being our guest this week, and thanks to James for sending in these tapes. I had so much fun listening to all of these tapes, including this EP. That's how I listened to it all week, just flipping the tape back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Totally. It it really did take me back. Like, I have a lot of tapes, but I, I rarely play them. But thanks to James this week, I, I really got into playing tapes. Did you get out your head cleaner and some get some new juice on the head cleaner? I should or what? do that, yeah. You better, you better, man. Yeah. Get some, get some of that dishwasher cassette deck head cleaner fluid going. Right before we started recording, I was listening to Napalm Death, Death by Manipulation on cassette. Yeah. Crank the treble on that one. Yeah. 
Hey, Ryan, what's next week? Ooh, next week, man. Can't wait to get into it. It's SST 218, the Das Daman Marshmallow Conspiracy. Can't wait, man. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at MoJackPod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is MoJackPod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.